COVID-19 has kept us separated, but not disconnected. In the midst of quarantine, drive through birthday parties, and front yard celebrations, a local Colorado Springs business was started with the goal to provide a way for our community to safely and conveniently support small businesses. I am so excited to support Front Porch Gift Company. Their beautiful gift boxes are filled entirely with local products from Colorado small businesses. And they have so many options to choose from. Their website has a variety of preset boxes available for purchase for more regular gift occurrences like birthdays and housewarmings. Or they can create a custom gift box based on your budget and your recipient. Corporate gifting options are also available for those of you that want to give your employees something special after this crazy year. Front Porch Gift Company is woman-owned by a couple of the most lovely ladies I know, and they are incredibly talented at crafting the perfect gift for any occasion. There is free local delivery for the Colorado Springs area, and additional shipping options are available. So whether you need one, five, or 500 gifts, Front Porch wants to help you give a meaningful gift to the people in your life. So give big, shop small. Use code ALTITUDE for 10% off your purchase at www.frontporchgiftco.com. You can also find Front Porch Gift Company on social media at Front Porch Gift Co. Hello, guys, and welcome to episode seven of Altitude Crime. I'm Amelia Allen, and we are discussing Colorado true crime today. Before we get started, why don't you go ahead and follow or subscribe to Altitude Crime on whatever podcast platform you listen on. Connect with me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast and on Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. Uh, please comment with your thoughts on this episode or suggest a crime. You can always visit the website, altitudecrime.com, for source materials. I would like to take a moment to address a recent shooting in Colorado Springs. On Sunday, which was Mother's Day, a shooter opened fire in a home, killing six members of the same family before committing suicide. I hope you will join me in a moment of remembrance as I say their names. Melvin Perez, Mayra Ibarra de Perez, Joanna Cruz, Jose Gutierrez, Sandra Ibarra Perez, and Jose Ibarra. Like I said before, incidents like this are a dark reality in our world. And while we can be infatuated with crime, we also need to be compassionate to those who have become victims. There is a fundraiser for funeral costs for the family on Facebook, and I will include that link on altitudecrime.com. Thank you for taking that time with me, and let's move on with our episode. I have to say, I love my listeners so much. You guys are the best, and I am so thankful for your support. 
I'm starting to get requests rolling in, and I am so excited to cover these cases. This week's episode is a suggestion from Shannon in Oklahoma City. Hi, Shannon. Shannon asked me to tell the story of Crystal Reisinger's disappearance from Crestone, Colorado. Crystal's story was actually covered in the second season of the Up and Vanished podcast. So I have to say, Shannon, I am so flattered that even though you have other options to listen to this story, that you've asked me to share it. So let's get into it. So I'd like to paint the scene of where Crystal disappeared from, Crestone, Colorado. I have not personally visited Crestone, but the reputation of Crestone definitely precedes itself. If you ask any longtime Colorado resident about Crestone, most will say the same thing, that weird things just tend to happen in Crestone. Crestone is located in the eastern section of the San Luis Valley in Sawatch County. Sawatch is from the Ute language and means blue-green earth. This refers to the valley floor that can look blue from afar, framed by the forest greenery of the mountains. Crestone sits at an elevation of 7,500 feet at the foot of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains. The red glow at sunset prompted Spanish explorers to name the range Blood of Christ. Crestone is just an hour drive away from Great Sand Dunes National Park. The closest towns that are a bit larger are north to Salida and south to Alamosa, both of which are about an hour away. In Colorado's early days, many Utes inhabited the area, but many tribes were known to inhabit and travel through the valley, including the Apache, Arapaho, Cheyenne, Comanche, Kiowa, and the Zuni people. For many native people, this area was a nice place to spend what was very hot summers in all the other nearby locations. Crestone Peak has sacred significance for the Hopi, as does Mount Blanca for the Navajo. In the Navajo tradition, Mount Blanca is one of the four sacred mountains that hold up the roof of the world. The area around Crestone was a Spanish land grant that was a personal gift from the King of Spain in the 1600s. This land then became the 100,000-acre Baca National Wild Refuge to the south of Crestone. To the east of the town are the old mining districts. Crestone started to boom in 1874 alongside the gold rush. It became incorporated in 1875, and in the 1890s, it was one of the larger towns in the state. By 1901, a subsidiary of the Denver and Rio Grande Railroad actually even had a leg going into Crestone. But around 1904, the gold mines dried up and the miners moved away. Like many mining areas in Colorado, Crestone is what is left of gold fever. Crestone's evolution into a so-called spiritual mecca began in 1977. It has been called the New Age religious capital of the world. 
Ironically enough, the town's foothold as a religious center came at the hands of a multi-millionaire businessman. Maurice and Hannah Strong had gained land in Creststone from a corporate dealing. The Strong soon met a wandering mystic that told them that the land had special spiritual vibrations. So instead of making the land a retirement community as planned, they gave free parcels of it to religious groups that wanted to create locations in the town. These land deals were done through the Manitou Foundation and Manitou Institute that the Strongs had created. The Manitou Foundation also works to preserve the ecology of the region, which includes bear, elk, and mountain lions. According to Lori Erickson, who is a writer for spirittravels.info, the town hosts, quote, more than two dozen ashrams, monasteries, temples, retreat centers, stupas, labyrinths, and other sacred landmarks. There's even a ziggurat, a structure modeled on the temples of ancient Babylon, unquote. The Up and Vanished website also noted that, quote, there's a Hindu temple, a Zen center, a co-ed Carmelite monastery, several Tibetan Buddhist centers, and miscellaneous New Age happenings, unquote. Interestingly enough, there is definitely some interest in Native American religions and cultures by the residents in the area, but all the facilities in Crestone are of a more, I guess you would say, foreign nature. The 2013 legalization of marijuana in Colorado brought a whole nother set of revival to Crestone, with more people moving into the surrounding areas. Additionally, Crestone is also the only place in the country that does open-air cremations for people of all religions through an organization called the End of Life Project. So, if you thought the cow smell in Greeley was bad... Crestone has a history of supposed UFO sightings and sightings of lights that make unexplainable movements. If you want to check it out for yourself, there is a UFO watchtower on Highway 17. Honestly, the atmosphere of Crestone kind of reminds me of a less sinister Skinwalker Ranch. If you aren't familiar with this area, it's a piece of land in Utah that for decades has been a hotbed of UFO sightings and crop circles, cattle mutilation, as well as a lot of reports of shapeshifters and other supernatural happenings. I'm definitely a big believer in the power of energy, and I think there's definitely areas of the world where the natural energy is just a lot stronger. So who knows, maybe Crestone, Colorado is one of those areas. Crestone, in its ways, is a pretty quaint place. It's a small town just a few streets long, and with little more than an organic grocery store, coffee shop, gas station, and a couple of eateries. Many of the businesses and houses boast both solar energy panels and very unique architectures. But Crestone has a duality that reminds me of the motel atmosphere we discussed in Eric Houston's case in episode 3. It's a large religious town, and you have a lot of really good people there, but there's also a really deep drug scene. The cooking of meth is well known in the area, 
And so it just seems to be this mix of low-key hippies that respect the area and the other people there. And then on the other side, you have maybe the druggies and some really rich people that have moved into the area that are maybe seen by other locals as not so respectful. The nearest police force is based in Sawatch, Colorado, which is a 40-minute drive from Crestone. And as of 2018, only six officers were patrolling the entire county. So if there's an issue, the police don't arrive fast. While Crestone only has a population of a whopping 150 people, the county and the surrounding areas have more like 6,100 residents. Many of these locals come to Crestone for the religious ceremonies held there. All of these things could have created the perfect storm leading to Crystal Reisinger's disappearance. Crystal Reisinger was an Arizona native and came from a pretty broken family. She moved to Colorado after becoming a ward of the state at age 15. She originally lived with her aunt in Denver, but when the situation with her aunt didn't really work out, Crystal decided to find a new place to live. Crystal then moved in with Rodney and Debbie Irvin, their son, and their daughter Amy. Crystal lived in their basement and soon became another daughter and sibling to the Irvins. Rodney and Debbie provided for Crystal as if they were her real parents, even putting her through college. Crystal met Elijah Guana in 2011. Eli and Crystal's relationship was a whirlwind, and it sounds like it really was the real deal. They had their daughter, Akasha, two years later. The Irvins would take Akasha in as a granddaughter. And by all accounts, Crystal was a good and nurturing mother. Crystal began to feel uncomfortable and unwelcome in the city atmosphere of Denver, especially with the drug scene there. She wanted to continue her path to enlightenment. Many of Crystal's friends said she was constantly on a spiritual journey. She was putting herself in focus in order to be a better person and mother in the long term. Eli and Crystal took a sort of break from their relationship, while Crystal took time to do this self-evaluation. Eli was supportive of the move. They talked constantly and saw each other often after she moved away. Crystal moved to Gunnison, Colorado for a brief time in 2014. Gunnison is the home of Western Colorado University. Crystal taught psychology and studied at Western. She would also meet a new boyfriend there that would eventually introduce her to Crestone, Colorado. Crystal moved to Crestone, Colorado in 2015. Crestone is located about four hours south of Denver, where Eli, Akasha, and the Irvins were all still living. Once in Crestone, Crystal began singing with a local band called Stimulus, And you can actually still find their music on SoundCloud if you're interested in checking that out. She also got a job at Crestone Brewing Company. The community was a really great fit for Crystal's lifestyle. Crystal was looking forward to getting settled in so that Eli and Akasha could eventually join her in Crestone. Crystal was a sensitive and overall positive person. She practiced Hindu and Buddhism, and also had a great interest in Native American traditions. Crystal often practiced with tarot cards. The true history of tarot, or as some will say, tarot, is cloudy, 
but there's a lot of symbolism in the cards. Contrary to popular belief, tarot is not used to tell the future. Rather, people who practice use the cards as a way of inner reflection and a way to open their intuition about themselves or their current situation. But in addition to her tarot practice, Crystal was known to her friends as being a psychic. Her surrogate sister, Amy Irvin, said Crystal was no new age hippie. As far as Amy is concerned, Crystal was the real deal as far as it came to her clairvoyance. Crystal's last vision would be her most terrifying one. She told Akasha's dad, Eli, that she had had a vision that, while it was unclear, she did glean that something terrible would happen to both herself and to Eli. Within days, the vision would start to come true. Shortly after this conversation, Eli was randomly attacked on the streets of Denver and was beaten within inches of his life. His face was beaten to a pulp, even collapsing one of his orbital sockets, which is located right around the eye. Crystal drove to Denver to help care for Eli as he began to recover. Once Eli was doing a little better, Crystal returned to her life in Crestone. Shortly after Crystal's return to the small town, she disappeared. Crystal was 29 at the time she went missing and had only been living in Crestone for one month. The information regarding Crystal's disappearance, even down to the timeline of her going missing, are hotly debated by Crestone locals. All the information from this point on is quite honestly a total hot mess. This has made this episode a hard one to research, since there's a lot of conjecture throughout this entire story. So I'm going to try to make this as cut and dry as possible and try to really get down to the guts of this story. To start off the story, the mugging that Eli was the victim of happened on June 19th, 2016. A few days later, on June 22nd, is when Crystal would return to Crestone after visiting him. On June 28th, less than one week later, a terrible incident would happen to Crystal. Her landlord, Ara, would be one of the first people to learn of it. When Ara went to collect July rent, Crystal was crying and told Ara that at a party on June 28th, she'd been plied with a lot of drugs. What Crystal knew for sure was that someone had taken advantage of her. Crystal told multiple close friends the same story. When she told her boyfriend at the time, Nathan, she thought it was too late to tell the police or get a rape kit done. Crystal became one of the many women who do not report sexual assault. According to the National Sexual Violence Resource Center, in 2018, only 25% of sexual assaults that occurred were reported to police. So Crystal was not alone. Crystal also told a couple people that she could identify two of the men that drugged and raped her, but there were more men there, but she wasn't sure who they were. On July 12th, Crystal's boyfriend, Nathan, would see her for the last time. They had a fight that night. By tracking her food stamp card, authorities would also find that Crystal bought groceries that day. July 13th, 2016 would be the last time that Eli and Akasha would speak to Crystal. 
In the same phone call, Crystal would tell Eli about the sexual assault. This date seems to be the most constant day that people last talked or last saw Crystal. In the following days, Eli was left to try to explain to four-year-old Akasha why her mother had stopped calling. Crystal's last Facebook post would happen the following day on July 14th. Crystal was a regular social media user, so her continued absence from Facebook is notable. On July 18th, Crystal was sighted at a full moon drum circle. Full moon drum circles in Crestone, and for the most part in general, serve as a religious ceremony and celebration, and they bring in a lot of people from the surrounding areas. July 21st is the birthday of a man named Catfish John. We'll talk about him some more in a little bit. On July 30th, Crystal's landlord, Ara, alerted authorities to her disappearance and filed a missing persons report. On August 16th, a case report was created by police regarding Crystal's disappearance. It is around the same date that Eli and Rodney Irvin went to Crestone and posted missing person flyers throughout the small town and talked to as many residents as they could. The Irvins had also stopped getting regular phone calls from Crystal. According to Fox 31 Denver, the Sawatch County Sheriff was aware that Crystal had gone for two-week walkabouts in the area surrounding Crestone in the past. So the initial hope was that Crystal had done this again and would return soon. So this is part of why a report on her was not opened until a month after her last known whereabouts. But with her continued lack of communication with family and overall absence on social media, it became clear that this was not the case. There was also suspicion that Crystal attended the drum circle and wandered away into the surrounding dense mountainous area, or that she'd possibly gotten hurt or lost on a walkabout or a hike. Thinking that this could have been the case, volunteers, helicopters, tracking, and cadaver dogs were all used to look for her in the nearby areas, but there was no sign of Crystal. The next angle investigators looked at was the possibility that Crystal had committed suicide. Her friends and family wholeheartedly rejected the idea of this. If nothing else, Crystal loved her daughter Akasha and would have not left her in that way. The last initial theory police looked at was the possibility that Crystal just decided to pick up and leave. But Crystal's apartment did not look like someone who A, was about to commit suicide, or B, leave her life in Crestone. The place looked like Crystal wasn't planning on going anywhere. Things were in order, the fridge had just been stocked, the shampoo and conditioner in her bathroom were even brand new. One of her cell phones, her cigarettes, and a medication that she took were also found in her apartment. Crystal was known to have some bad luck with phones. She often lost them or broke them. So from what I can pick apart uh, from all these stories about Crystal is that this was not her most current phone, but the one that she was using just prior to it. Needless to say, all of these initial theories fell off pretty quickly. 
So now that we have a basic timeline, let's break down some of the main players in this story in Crestone. When officers and the Up and Vanished podcast staff started asking around for information, people have a lot to say about Crystal's disappearance. But that means there is a ton of he said, she said in this case, and so much finger pointing. So I'm going to try to give you some stories of the main people that keep coming up in this case, and we'll talk about some theories that have arisen out of this information. Ara McDonald, who was Crystal's friend and landlord, had noticed she'd been going out and partying a lot in the short time frame leading up to her disappearance. Other residents in the complex had complained that shady people seemed to be coming and going, and they were always landing in Crystal's unit. Ara had even said she'd gotten noise complaints from other residents, but Crystal's neighbor right next door said he never heard anything. So this is a perfect example of the inconsistencies you'll start to see in this case. Ara told Up and Vanished that she played Crystal's voicemails when she found her phone in the apartment. She said it seemed like Crystal was preparing to go somewhere. Ara, as well as the sheriff's office, have said that the last call to Crystal was from a local in Crestone. This man had a history of assault and had drugged a victim in the past. This man's identity has been kept confidential for the integrity of the investigation. Ara had also told Oxygen that there was a string of drugging and rapings in Crestone around the time that Crystal disappeared. She said it would happen to girls and they'd just get dropped in their front lawns with no memory of what happened. COVID-19 has kept us separated, but not disconnected. In the midst of quarantine, drive through birthday parties, and front yard celebrations, a local Colorado Springs business was started with the goal to provide a way for our community to safely and conveniently support small businesses. I am so excited to support Front Porch Gift Company. Their beautiful gift boxes are filled entirely with local products from Colorado small businesses. And they have so many options to choose from. Their website has a variety of preset boxes available for purchase for more regular gift occurrences like birthdays and housewarmings. Or they can create a custom gift box based on your budget and your recipient. Corporate gifting options are also available for those of you that want to give your employees something special after this crazy year. Front Porch Gift Company is woman-owned by a couple of the most lovely ladies I know, and they are incredibly talented at crafting the perfect gift for any occasion. There is free local delivery for the Colorado Springs area, and additional shipping options are available. So whether you need one, five, or 500 gifts, Front Porch wants to help you give a meaningful gift to the people in your life. So give big, shop small. Use code ALTITUDE for 10% off your purchase at www.frontporchgiftco.com. You can also find Front Porch Gift Company on social media at Front Porch Gift Co. A man by the nickname Dreddy Brian 
was the boyfriend that Crystal dated in Gunnison, and he had actually introduced her to Crestone, Colorado. They became close really quickly. For a brief time, Akasha lived in Gunnison with Crystal, too. Brian would often babysit Akasha for Crystal. On March 16, 2014, Brian ended up totaling Crystal's car. She told a friend that she thought he did it on purpose. And when Brian didn't pay for the damages, Crystal filed a police report in Gunnison for $2,200. The relationship ended, but after some time, they did become friends again. Brian had thought that Crystal was at the drum circle on July 18th. He did say that he didn't actually see her, but he thought that he heard her voice singing. Crystal had started dating Nathan Peliquin after breaking up with Dreddy Brian. Crystal and people close to her claimed her drugging and raping happened at Catfish John's house. Nathan actually picked Crystal up from Catfish's house the night of the incident. In the Oxygen special, he said, quote, She called me on June 28th and I took care of her for like the next two weeks because I never seen her that scared. And I told her to go to the police. She told me that he held her there. He wouldn't let her leave. It was a couple weeks before she went missing. Unquote. Catfish John is a name that will come up a lot when you look into this case. He came from a wealthy family that owns some of the religious centers in town. His name is definitely reminiscent of the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band song. Catfish denied that Crystal was drugged and raped at his home. He said the last time he saw her was around his birthday on July 21st. So you could then assume that could have been before the 21st, maybe around the July 18th sightings of Crystal at the drum circle, or it could have been after the 21st, which would have been long after anyone else had last sighted Crystal. Catfish said that the night she came over, they watched movies, drank wine, and smoked pot. She stayed the night, left the next morning, and said she was going to see a man called Big Cat. Catfish offered for officers to check his house for signs of Crystal. Catfish's name would come up again when a Facebook message was sent to the sheriff's office. This person's story was that when they passed Catfish's house around 9 p.m. one rainy night, he had a golden color minivan, and next to the minivan was a shovel and a large bag. The bag seemed to be packaged up with duct tape and looked like it could have been bedsheets. And it could have been big enough for a human. The informant tried to follow this gold van, but lost it when it sped away. There's been rumors that a gold van has been seen throughout the county and near a lot of the local mines. Catfish, when asked, claimed that Dreddy Brian had confessed to killing Crystal in a Facebook message to him. Catfish said he has turned this over to the CBI but did not release the message to the Up and Vanished team due to some issues with his computers and overall cloud-based storage. He also said he's no longer friends with Brian because of the confession. 
Catfish has since moved away from Crestone due to the constant accusations from locals regarding Crystal's disappearance. Other locals have claimed to watch his house get cleaned and that carpets and furniture and all this stuff got cleared out. But take this with a grain of salt because a search warrant has not been done at his house, so all of this information is unofficial. The Up and Vanish team was able to track down Big Cat that Crystal supposedly went to see after leaving Catfish John's house that day. He said he hadn't seen Crystal since two weeks before her disappearance, and he seemed really surprised that his name even came up. There hasn't been any other information to link him to Crystal's disappearance. There's a lot more than what I just gave you out there. Like I said, I am trying to cut down to some of the most important pieces and trying to leave out as much town gossip as I can. If you want to hear more detailed stories about these key players and other locals in Crestone, I do recommend listening to season two of Up and Vanished. I'll be honest, I may have given away some of the drama of their storytelling, but there's a lot more content and a lot more of getting into the weeds of these stories if that's what you want to hear. Again, I didn't want to dig into this any deeper because I think a lot of the talk between locals and Crestone is not very valuable, and I think the drama of it kind of clouds the ability to cut through to the facts of this case. All right, so we can see already the kind of talk that's happening in Crestone. Uh, There's a lot of back and forth, a lot of finger pointing, a lot of names coming up and then being thrown back at each other. So let's move on to some of the theories about Crystal's disappearance. Let's go ahead and kind of debunk the theory that Crystal wandered off on a hike or from the drum circle and either hurt herself or got stuck and died from the elements or something to that effect. This area of Colorado is a piece of wilderness that is totally realistic to disappear in. Some people think they're more capable in the wilderness than they really are, and plenty of people walk off into the forest and never, ever, ever come back. But realistically, if she wandered off, you would think that her remains would have been found by now because they wouldn't necessarily be hidden There's a really big difference between finding an accidental body, somebody who trips, they fall, they hit their head, they break their neck, they die right there, whatever the case may be, versus someone who has been hidden by another person. We're really aware of this from the Scott Kimball case in episode four, that police maybe kind of have an area to look in, but if you hide a body well enough, It's hidden and not so easy to come across. So I am definitely on board with this is not what happened to Crystal. And I'm pretty sure that I don't think she committed suicide either. The Sawatch County Sheriff's Office, along with pretty much everyone else, really suspects foul play in Crystal's disappearance due to the length of time she's been gone. Additionally, the drum circle sightings have really been widely accepted to probably have not happened or be mistaken 
or even possibly be cover-ups to screw with the timeline of Crystal's disappearance. Since there have never been any sightings of her to be reported between her more accepted last sighting date of July 13th and the drum circle on July 18th, I can definitely get behind this. This is far too small of a town for somebody to not see her for five days. The first theory regarding foul play involves Crystal becoming aware of the drug activity in and around Crestone. According to the investigation discovery interview with Eli, he theorized that, quote, the guys who were directly involved in Crystal's rape have strong ties in the drug market that goes back and forth directly from Crestone to Denver. Crystal had made a decision to do something about it. She wanted them to be accountable for their actions, and that's when she went missing. I strongly believe she was murdered by those guys. Unquote. It's a definite possibility that a confident Crystal got herself in too far and someone just snuffed her out. The second theory kind of goes hand in hand with the first and is in regards to Crystal's sexual assault. The theory is that whoever did this was afraid that Crystal would tell authorities and they got rid of her before she could do that. And I think that does tie in closely to the drug scene. If that's who was responsible for her sexual assault, that seems to all mesh together really well. But I'll be honest, I can't really give you a lot of good information on this episode like I usually try to because there's so much conflicting talk about Crystal's disappearance. And there certainly are a lot of suspects in this case, but it was really difficult for authorities to get viable information as they looked into her disappearance, especially from those individuals that were into the Crestone drug scene. So in addition to all this kind of small town talk, I do want to throw out a few dynamics that have also kind of made this investigation really difficult. So just as a random note, initially Rodney Irvin did not have a really great trust in the police department. Uh, He couldn't tell if things were getting withheld or if they were just understaffed. But since then, the public suspicion of the sheriff's office has started to go away Uh, The producers of Up and Vanish think that the sheriff is being as transparent as possible and that there's just not a lot to release to the public. And I think there's a basic distrust that if something isn't happening fast enough, it's on the cops, when a lot of times that isn't the case. Although it certainly does happen, but I don't think as often as we think it does. People who move to Crestone often use aliases, So to try to track down a person, it can be really hard since no one really knows them by their legal name. I think you could see this in the story already, considering names like Dreddy Brian and Catfish John. (laughs) It has been noted by a few interviews that there is a group of people that kind of float through town that refer to themselves as the Rainbow People or sometimes the Rainbow Gathering. And Catfish John actually mentioned the term in some of his interviews with Up and Vanished. And people have some differing opinions of this group, but it overall seems like they maybe don't have a stellar reputation in town. 
One local described them as being kind of primal and kind of wild, and they're this group with no rules, and they've rejected civilization, and they're really, like, growing their families within this group. Um, drugs are widely used, and they're kind of known to be drifters, and they can travel to different areas and different states. So whether this particular group is involved or not, I think it's obvious that there is a lot of drifting through town, which in theory could make it harder to find who caused Crystal's disappearance, especially if they could have been someone who was just traveling through. There are also plenty of ex-druggies in the area that would maybe not be keen to rat out on someone even if they knew something because there's still kind of a connection to that scene. Uh, here's one that's a little creepy. A couple of Crystal's friends have actually had contact with her since her disappearance in the form of Facebook activity. So one friend sent a message really early on when Crystal went missing and it showed as red pretty quickly, but never got answered. And then about a year after Crystal went missing, a second friend got a friend request from her. But when she messaged her right away to say like, hey, everybody's looking for you, what's going on? They never received a reply. Crystal's story fell out of the media really quickly. Chris Halsney of Fox News KDVR was the only reporter to really pick up the story of her disappearance until Up and Vanish covered the story two years later. And let's be honest, she wasn't the typical pretty benign white girl that the media usually picks up on. She wasn't somebody that had this perfect looking life from the outside. And I think part of that too is considering that she had left her daughter to move around to these different areas. And I think to really understand Crystal and to understand this case, you have to quell those kind of moral gut reactions of like, she left her daughter and she was irresponsible and she was just wandering around when she should have been with her or whatever random thing you think about Crystal. I think you have to understand that she's a person who went through childhood trauma. And I feel like this is the greatest type of trauma and that people really have to try to get over it their entire lives. So, I mean, at least good for Crystal to acknowledge that she was uncentered and she wanted to become better so that she would be a better mother in the long term. And regardless, even if Crystal was a not great mom or a not great person, it's still not okay that she went missing under what are really foul circumstances. So really, your view of Crystal's life is totally irrelevant. What's relevant is that nobody deserves to go missing, to have a daughter that doesn't know where she is, to have family and friends that don't have answers. The rest doesn't matter. Needless to say, with Crystal's disappearance not being covered by the media and not getting a lot of help in Crestone, her case went cold really fast. One year after her disappearance, the Colorado Bureau of Investigation joined officers in researching her case. The Bureau, also called the CBI, 
assists law enforcement throughout the state of Colorado on active investigations. In the years since Crystal went missing, the CBI has taken over pretty much the entirety of the case. Whether officers have a key suspect in mind or a circumstantial case could be made against someone, it probably won't do much good without finding Crystal's remains. And in tune, Akasha, as well as Crystal's medium, have both said that Crystal is in a cool place near a river, something like a mine shaft. There are 62 of these near Crestone. In 2018, Chris Halsney and the Fox News team at KDVR, in conjunction with the Colorado Division of Reclamation, Mining, and Safety, and the Up and Vanish team searched 40 of these mines. The ones that they did not check were deemed not good options to get to or be able to get a body into. If a car could get within a quarter mile of the mine, they searched it. They used GoPros and plumber snaking and even remote control cars to get farther into the mines. While they did find some mines that were accessible when they should have been blocked off, there still was no sign of crystal. There's a saying in Crestone that basically if someone goes missing, check the old mines in the area. It's kind of the Colorado version of burying a body in the Nevada desert. But I want to stop and really explain the terrain we are looking at as far as finding crystal's body without any good information. First, The areas around Crestone are very wooded and rocky and can be considered pretty treacherous. In addition, when we're talking about hiding someone in a mine, it's not just one way in and one way out. Each one of these mines has a network of tunnels in it that someone could hide a body in. And it is possible for there to be cave-ins that may block a path to find where a body is hidden. Layer that with the time it's taking to get good information, a cave-in could settle and not be as noticeable as being new to searchers and look more like an existing mine wall. Right now, we're really looking at a needle in a haystack situation. What Chris Halsney and the rest of the teams did find was an odd image. After taking a picture of a deep hole, The shadow of the hole, as well as Chris's position of holding the camera, created a shadow that looked like a winged being. Crystal's family and friends took this as a sign that Crystal was there somewhere, just waiting to be found. So let's be honest, this case is a total cluster, but I will give you one hot take on this. If I had to put my money on it, I would say that there are multiple people involved in Crystal's disappearance. Whether multiple people did something to her, or one or two did with a lot of witnesses. I think everyone in Crestone is talking in circles because everyone knows a little bit more than what they say they do. So the more they point fingers at each other, the more they're trying to get the heat off of themselves. And you do have to wonder if this lingering story is starting to not fit the atmosphere of Crestone. 
the town is really trying to exude this picture of calm and it's so centered and there's so many outlets for your religion or your energy. You gotta wonder if some people in town just want this story to go away. As of this recording, there have not been any arrests or any public updates on Crystal's case. Authorities do believe that someone in Crestone could be withholding information that could be key in finding out what happened to Crystal. Her friends and family have no hope at this point that she is alive, but still hope to find out what happened and locate her remains. Crystal is 5'6 and weighs around 155 pounds. She has platinum blonde dreadlocks and a lot of really distinctive tattoos. She has blue eyes, her nose is pierced, and she also has gauge ear piercings in both ears. If you have information about Crystal's disappearance, please call the Sawatch County Sheriff's Office at 719-655-2525. You can also email dwarwick, that's D-W-A-R-W-I-C-K at Sawatch County, S-A-G-U-A-C-H County dot C-O gov and put crystal in the subject line. There is currently a $20,000 reward for any information that gives answers in crystal's case. There is also a semi-active GoFundMe account to raise funds to continue the search for crystal. The last time it was updated was in 2018 around the time that up and vanished was covering crystal's case. You can visit AltitudeCrime.com for the link to this page. Season 2 of Up and Vanished that starred Crystal's case had over 17 million downloads. And while more people know about Crystal than they did before, we're still left with a lot more questions than answers. If you'd like to hear more about the cluster of information this case is, I have included a link to the Up and Vanished website on AltitudeCrime.com. And I have to apologize. I feel like I gave a lot less answers and a lot less information than I usually do in my episodes. With all the he said, she said, I don't know if we're going to get to any kind of clarifying answer. Amy Irvin, who was like a sister to Crystal, says Crystal was certainly clairvoyant and that Akasha has definitely inherited the ability. A five-year-old Akasha told Up and Vanished in 2018 that, quote, My mommy is in the spirit world, unquote. You have to wonder, is this a child who's just been paying attention to the adults and is regurgitating this? Or is this a daughter of someone with the gift of sight who is telling us a truth we have yet to learn on our own? Thanks again for listening today, guys. I know this story is totally convoluted and may have been kind of confusing, Don't forget to follow or subscribe to Altitude Crime on whatever podcast platform you listen on and connect with me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast and Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. 
Source materials for this episode can be found at altitudecrime.com. Thanks again for spending part of your day with me. Tune in next week for another episode of Altitude Crime. Episode 7, The Disappearance of Crystal Reisinger, was written, edited, and recorded by Amelia Allen. Music provided by podbean.com.